This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode one of Equestrian Legends. Hello, I'm Chris Stafford, and Equestrian Legends is the latest radio show and podcast to be produced by the Horse Radio Network. Its theme is at once simple and classical, to celebrate the lives of men and women from different disciplines who have shaped the horse world in their chosen fields, and, by popular acclaim, have become a legend in their own lifetime. We will hear in their own voice what has shaped their career, their influences, what has driven them to success in the arena, and how they reflect on their lives. These in-depth interviews are often the only radio recording available, and many of them are unique in a digital format. We reveal aspects of these celebrated personalities which have previously not been broadcast by taking a more personal approach to the conversations. In all of them, we will find a common thread, their love of the horse and passion for their equestrian lifestyle, as well as what has motivated them to be the best they can be, sometimes facing challenges in their day, and sometimes in a bygone era which makes their story even more unique and remarkable. We will hear from horsemen and women who grew up during World War I, while segregation and prohibition were a way of life. Many of the guests will be retired from the sport and out of the public eye, and so the opportunity to memorialise their lives has become a privilege and an honour. Some of these equestrian celebrities were my heroes, And so it is a great pleasure to introduce you to them so that we can all appreciate why they have shaped the course of history in our horse world. These treasured conversations will be archived permanently for generations to come. My first guest is widely considered an icon in the sport of show jumping. William Clark Steinkraus, also known as Bill or Billy, was born on October 12, 1925, an Olympic show jumping gold medalist who rode in five consecutive Olympic Games, Bill was also an accomplished musician, playing violin and viola all his life. He was also an author and businessman. He rode for the USCT for 22 years and captained the team for 17 of those. His victory aboard Snowbound at the 1968 Mexico Olympic Games marked the first time an American rider won an individual gold medal. Bill also contributed to two Olympic team silver medals in 1960 at Rome and 1972 at Munich and the team bronze medal at Helsinki in 1952. Bill was also a member of the gold medal Pan American teams in 1959 at Chicago and in 1963 at Sao Paulo. Some of his many famous partners included Night Owl, Bold Minstrel, Main Spring, Snowbound and Zardes Brie a meticulous rider who won both the McClay and Good Hands finals in 1941, Bill influenced today's equitation styles, and in 1961 he wrote Riding and Jumping. The book was translated into several languages and is still in print. His most recent book is Reflections on Riding and Jumping, published in 1997. Bill retired from international competition in 1972, He was elected president of the U.S. equestrian team in 1973 and in 1983 became chairman of the USET's board of directors. He also served as a director of the American Horse Shows Association and National Horse Show, as well as being a delegate to the International Equestrian Federation. 
Bill continued to share his expertise as a television commentator for the Montreal and Los Angeles Olympic Games, as well as three world championships and four World Cup finals. Former USET rider Hugh Wiley said of Bill Steinkraus, he would think through a riding problem and always come up with an intelligent answer. After riding, he usually played his fiddle, read the Wall Street Journal or went to the opera. And former USET coach Berta Linda Nemethy said of Steinkraus, Bill was a no-nonsense man. American riders respected him for his horsemanship and the Europeans were surprised that someone as cultured, educated and intelligent could be an American rider. Bill and his wife, dressage judge and organizer Helen Ziegler Steinkraus, live in Norriton, Connecticut and have three sons. You are and have been for many years a very inspirational person in the horse world and well beyond, and we're delighted for you to join us. Well, that's for you to judge, and I thank you for your kind words. I know you're a man of so very many interests and activities over a very full life, but I'd like, if I may, to start at the beginning, Bill, and those very early days about your family upbringing and how they prepared you for life and the values that they catered you in and helped you in your early, very early days. I was very lucky. I wasn't born into a horsey family. But I was born into a family of very unusual people. I had two older siblings who were both very gifted and very wonderful people. And my mother and father were marvelous. And they believed in encouraging children to find what they wanted to do and then supported them in doing it. And during the Depression, that wasn't necessarily so easy because there was a lot of driving from my mother to various lessons, drama lessons for one sister and music lessons for another and writing lessons for me. And financially, it was nowhere near as hard as it is today. But in the Depression, it was still tough. So she was something of a financial wizard to be able to keep all those things going in the 1930s. And what was your inspiration then, a motivation to get into ponies at an early age, Bill? Well, I think the horse thing was just spontaneous. Nobody knows exactly where it came from. I was born a horse nut. I always liked the horse toys and the horse books and the horse pictures and the everything horses long before I did very much riding. But with the odd pony ride at a fair or something like that, I got a little taste, and then I got real exposure to it at a summer camp that I went to when I was 9 and 10 years old. And they had a good riding program, and the people gave me a very good attitude towards it. And when I came back from camp, I was dying to get into a riding program. And I was going to what was almost primarily a girl's exclusively a girls' school, because it simplified the driving for my mother. But that school had a riding program, which very few boys' schools did. And I was able to get into that riding program run by a wonderful Canadian woman named Ada Maud Thompson, who was fox hunter primarily. She was not a showering person especially, but she had a wonderful feeling for animals and a wonderful feeling for children and dogs and you name it, dog hounds especially. And she gave me my real foundation. She believed very much in bareback riding, and I think it was a wonderful foundation because there is a limit to how wrong you can do things bareback. You fall off if you do them really wrong. 
and the, some of the very artificial positions that you see accepted even by showring judges can't be sustained very long if you're riding bareback. So I'm very grateful to Ada Maud. And then my mother found other teachers for me, saw that I could be competitive and that I was interested in competitive riding. And I rode for a while with Gordon Wright, who was very, very good. And then I went from there. They let me be exposed to Morton W. Smith, who was thought by many to be the best jumper rider in America, and lived only a few miles down the road. And he invited me to ride with him. And he wasn't primarily a riding instructor, and he was a very tough guy. He was a horse dealer. But I learned a tremendous amount from him. And then, of course, the horse thing just continued with the U.S. equestrian team. The Olympic Games were turned over to amateurs. They had always been an exclusive province of the career army officer prior to that time. But I went to see the Olympic Games in 1948 on a tour just before I graduated from college and was just blown away by it, never dreaming that four years later I would be riding in it myself in Helsinki. But that's really kind of how it developed, and who made that all possible? My wonderful mother, because she could very easily have said in the 30s, you know, it's very nice and I will support your riding, but we can't afford it. And she found a way. She found a way for all those things, so... Then, luckily, I found a wife who was very supportive of my riding and of riding for our children. They all know how to ride. Nobody wanted to make quite the life commitment to it that I wanted to do from the beginning. I would say not as a professional because, of course, at that time, the Olympics were entirely amateur, and you could not support yourself by riding or by dealing and still go to the Olympic Games. Anyhow, as I say, they all learned how to ride, and they all learned a lot of other things, and luckily I did too. My mother was very musical, my father was musical, and they thought that the arts were very important for the children to learn the liberal arts, and so we all had good exposure to them, and I played, I just got through practicing the viola. I played violin and viola all my life, and it's been a great source of pleasure and inspiration to me. Well, we should mention, Bill, uh, during those early days, of course, you had a very good education at Yale University and served uh, time in the Army as well, in the cavalry branch. Well, that's right. I took my basic training in mounted horses, and I had to take two years while I went to Burma with what was supposed to be mounted cavalry. We ended up marching behind mules through the monsoon (laughs) hills, the Kachin Hills, but that was a... a wonderful experience for a young man if he survives it. We lost a lot of wonderful young men in my unit fighting the Japanese. But if you survive it, you learn life lessons that are very, very precious. One of them being how much adversity you can cope with simply by putting one foot in front of the other in the mud and in the rain and in the torrent and with people shooting at you. And you learn how wonderful people are, how generous they are, how brave on average they are. Uh, It was an experience that I think is very, very valuable. I think the experience of being subject to some kind of outside discipline is very, very valuable also for young people. And the good schools do it, and we went through a stage when even Yale was, I would say, very, very permissive about behavior. But I remember a decade in which 
uh, undergraduates took over the administration building of colleges. Uh, Columbia was an example. So as I say, I was very, very lucky in that I got a good foundation in life from a lot of people and from a lot of experiences. To going to India and China, ending up, ended up in Shanghai. I started off seeing Bom- Bombay and Calcutta, and then went into Burma. That uh, was a very important experience to me in my life, but I'm glad I survived. And when you came back, Bill, you went back to, to Yale, and then where did you turn for business after that? I went, which was a dream of mine, into the concert management business as a kind of an apprentice with a very nice German gentleman who had come to the United States, lucky to get out of Europe because he was Jewish, in the early 1940s and became manager of the New Friends of Music, which was a series of chamber music concerts in Town Hall in New York, 16 concerts a year. So he dealt with all the other concert managers, and I thought that would be a good place to get an overview of the business if I indeed wanted to stay in it. And I spent four or five years kicking around the concert management business, both little agencies. He finally went solo with his own agency and became very good. But I also spent a couple of years with Columbia Artist Management, and they ran the community concerts all over the United States, and they used me kind of as a troubleshooter, and I got to see the United States, which is quite a lot, under very interesting circumstances in that job. You were always dealing with the same people. You were dealing with the newspaper publisher. You were dealing with the head of the music program in the schools and the principals of the schools, and you got a real comparison of how United States operate, and yet always dealing with people who loved music, as I did very, very much. So that was a good experience. But then, after a while, I thought, this is not a good time to try to establish an agency of your own. And instead, I went to Wall Street and got a job kicking around Wall Street and learned, (laughs) destroyed a lot of illusions, but also learned a lot of things that have been very useful to me in my later life. And then, through a collection of circumstances, I got involved in book publishing, first through a horse book, one that I did myself for a double day. And then I did a lot of other books. And then I became editor-in-chief at one point of Winchester Press, doing all kinds of books on outdoor recreation. And that was a wonderful experience. And through all of those things, I met really wonderful people, people who've meant a lot to me subsequently. You're extensively published as an author of... Have you kept account of how many titles you, you have your name on? I haven't really. In many cases, the name is on because I wrote the foreword. I've written a couple dozen forewords to different books. But I had the great pleasure of doing one book, The Horse in Sport, with the younger of my two sisters. They were both older than I was, but but Marjorie was an actress and and a writer, excellent writer herself and researcher. And I said, the idea of a book of a horse in sport, very important to me, but that really involves some things I don't know very much about, and it's a research job. And I don't have time to do all of the research into the early origins of polo and rodeo and so forth. So she did that part of it, and I did the FEI disciplines, the Olympic disciplines, and others. And we collaborated on it, and that was a very, very great pleasure for me to work with her. And it's a very, very nice book, beautifully produced book also, beautifully illustrated 
So that sticks out. And I did the very first book. I did another reprise on that, and that the reflections on riding and jumping is is still in print and has a lot of. It's a how-to book. It's uh, what I learned from all my experiences that work things that worked and things that didn't work. And it was very good for me to search out my own experiences and try to get them down on paper and not as easy as I first thought it was going to be. Well, learning, of course, has been an an important part of your life, and I I know you've had some wonderful teachers, Gordon Wright, you referenced, and Cappy Smith, of course. Of of all the teachers in your life, Bill, can you pick out any, or have there been too many that have influenced your life to single out any number of them? Well, I tried to learn from everybody about horses, but from many I learned from other things as well, especially Bertolon de Nemeti, who was coach of the U.S. equestrian team, and I was instrumental in getting him engaged by the team, but he was, what, for the best part of 20 years, coach of the team and was a wonderful person, and I helped him when he was ready to do a book, get that into print, so he had a wonderful book on his method and his thoughts about horses and so forth, published by Doubleday. So I edited dozens, if not hundreds, of books at Winchester Press, also at Diva Nostrand, many of them involving some form of outdoor recreation, but also I edited a book on Alexander Calder, which was, was great fun, also Sandy Calder, was a wonderful experience, and I did things in other areas of my interest, and I was interested in all the arts, especially music. Music has meant an enormous amount to me through my 85 years, and I hear a lot of music every day, and I still play music every day myself, stumbling along, but uh, I've never given up. And and the musicians I've met in my life have meant a great deal to me, and people in all of the arts. So I have a lot of people who don't know that I'm a horse person, basically. They, they know me in some other connection, and it's curious. And I have horse people that don't know of my interest in music, especially. But it's been a very important, very gratifying part of my life because you can expose yourself to genius so easily simply by turning on the radio or playing a CD or picking up an instrument and with my sister, the older of the two sisters, was a wonderful pianist, was a concert pianist. And with her, she was my tutor in the whole literature of chamber music involving uh, piano and violin or viola. And we would go through the whole cycle of all the Mozart sonatas, all the Beethoven sonatas, all the Schubert, Schumann sonatas. It was just wonderful part of my life. Unfortunately, all of my family of that generation are dead, and I miss them really more than I can say, but I think of them every day, and they were so generous, all of them, my mother, my father, my sisters. Uh, They had a huge influence on me and made my life what it became and made it very much worth living. It sounds as if you have enjoyed so many inspirational parts of your life, from music to horses and and well beyond and literature. But what actually entertains you now, Bill, and makes you laugh? Wit, I think. Um, wit, especially the kind of wit that doesn't telegraph itself. You don't know <laughs> that it's coming. And then I would say I spontaneously laugh. In addition to the things that make you laugh, are the things that, that bring a tear to the eye or make me 
gasped for breath, and that's very often in music, but also in painting, in ballet, in opera. Those things are so available today and so marvelous. I have a a bunch of complete operas, um, both DVD and CD, and I tape them off the air, either on the computer or on television. So I really have, I'm not, not, not surfeited. I've never exhausted my appetite for those wonderful things, for the Beethoven symphonies, the Mozart string quartets, the operas of Verdi and Richard Strauss and Mozart. I mean, having access to those things, I think, is just wonderful, and they're readily available. Unfortunately, the schools have very often abandoned the music appreciation courses as part of their drive for economy. And although there is more wonderful art available to the general public than ever, I worry that the portion of the general public that makes itself available to those wonderful arts is diminishing. Um, It's very, very sad because there is no nourishment to compare with the nourishment that you can derive from the geniuses of the past and indeed the geniuses of the present. But you have to have you have to understand those languages. And the only way you can understand those languages is by exposing yourself to them and learning about them. Uh, you can learn about them through the literature. The literature of writing is wonderful. The literature of music is wonderful. And they're all available. There and now you, we're going to be able to take them down electronically the the contents of the great libraries of the world. So very important, I think, for young people to learn those languages and the means of access to them, because the means of access are more democratically distributed than ever in history. There's really no excuse for somebody to be culturally illiterate. If you can gain cultural literacy, the treasures of the history of mankind are handed to you free, very freely. So that's a wonderful thing. It's important to get a good education and to give yourself exposure to the wonderful things that are there for the taking. Which of those things would give you goosebumps, Bill? All of them at one time or another. I would say the first time you experience the great masterpieces in whatever art form of the world, you can go into Chartres Cathedral, and you get goosebumps. If you don't get goosebumps or the equivalent thereof, I mean, that's such a fabulous experience. So I say, I've had it in art. You go through the Metropolitan Museum of Art in this country or the Louvre or British Museum. It's very important not to diminish, just selfishly, the importance of the art, even though you can't put a dollar value on everything immediately. I think very important in living your life to gain access to the arts and to gain a good access to nature's wonders. And not the least of nature's wonders are horses and dogs and and cats. I think they coexist in my life, always have. And they're wonderful, wonderful companions. So, And they do things that are so clever that make you laugh or make you choke even. They're so brave, so generous. Horses, the things horses have done for me, I just could hardly describe. They're so right at the level, at the maximum level of their demands upon themselves, simply because you ask them to do it. It's a great part of my life, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. You've clearly fed off the feast of all these things in life, Bill, but what actually entertains you now and, and makes you laugh? 
Well, as I said, unexpected wit makes me laugh. Just dogs playing with each other, horses being silly. A lot of things make me laugh, and not least of all, the people who have made a, a career out of doing it. I mean, I grew up in, in the era when Robert Bensley made you laugh. That era of comedian, I think, were just what was just wonderful. Chaplin has to make you laugh. Those things still do. The, the very great professional laugh makers knew their skills very, very well, and they still make me laugh. The Marx Brothers? Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the Olympic Games, Bill, because you have been involved with the Olympic movement now in, in various ways over many, many years, several decades. Tell us about that involvement. It's more than half a century, actually, because I started in the 30s when the Olympics were first in Los Angeles in 32, and then in Berlin in 36. And at that point, I was, as, as I remain, an avid periodical reader. So I used to get horse magazines when people had no longer needed them and study them. So I read I was only seven when the games came to Los Angeles. But in the mid-30s, I read all about them. I read all about the Berlin Games in 1948. Then I saw as a spectator the London Games. In 1952, I rode at Helsinki, and then I rode at Stockholm. And then I was on six successive Olympic teams, only missing riding once when horse got hurt before the Games. That was... Tokyo, but I ended that 20-year span in 1972 in Munich, and then I started doing television commentary, seeing all of those different countries, seeing what they would bring to the Olympic movement from their own culture. They were all different. They're not just countries, as you realize. The Olympic Games are organized by the organizing committee of a city. It is cities that take the Olympic Games, not countries that take the Olympic Games. But they take place in that country. So I did that then through Seoul. I commented on the Seoul Olympic career was fascinating. Then I did Barcelona as a judge, thinking that would be an interesting experience. And I had always been on a bunch of rules committees, and I think it's unfair to write rules if you don't see how they work out in practice both from the ring on horse's back, but also from the judge's box. So I did that, and then I came back as a guest for the first time, but I didn't have a, an actual role in Los Angeles. And now I'm reduced uh, to just being a spectator again. I have physical problems that prevent me from going to the Olympic Games anymore, but I watch them on television, just like many other people, or on the computer. We've been getting some feed, as you're well aware, of important horse events on streaming. And my interest still continues, has never flagged, although the Olympic movement has just changed colossally, especially the change from the requirement for amateurism to open gates for professionals. But I think it still has a huge role to play in the modern world. I think Kubrick's insight was a profound one. The idea of sport being incorporated in the lives of ordinary people, so-called, I think was very, very important. And to the extent that now the Olympic Games are the province of the exclusively, really, of the professional I think we've lost something. Even so, there is an exposure of average people to all of these Olympic sports, winter now as, as well as summer. 
So I think that the movement still has very important roles to play, and I hope it continues unabated. You had so many accomplishments as an Olympian and administratively and all the, the things that you just mentioned, Bill. So when you look back on your life now, which accomplishments are you most proud of? I would say I'm proudest. Uh, pride, as we know, goeth before a fall. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm I'm really proudest of the accomplishments of the United States equestrian teams, those many teams in the many disciplines. During the period, I was president of the U.S. equestrian team, and I was then chairman of it, and I'm now chairman emeritus. And what the kids, they are to me, are accomplishing today, I think it's just wonderful. We've had wonderful representatives of the United States of our country in Olympic Games and Pan American Games and the World Cups and the World Championships. We have a World Championship in Kentucky, which is just wonderful, as you're well aware. And that will expose the equestrian sports again, I hope, to a much wider audience than may have been exposed to them thus far. I'm not at all ashamed to say that I'm very proud of what they've accomplished and what I hope they will be able to continue to accomplish. Does anything ever intimidate you, Bill? Crazy, real clinical craziness terrifies me. If you deal with wacko criminals, as we have been obliged to do in the present world, the, the role of the terrorists, that's very, very frightening to me because you can't deal with them on a rational basis. A culture that is willing to stone people to death because they believe they were convicted of improper exposure or of adultery or whatever, that's not a society that I know how to cope with because I don't think you can sit down and just deal with diplomacy with that kind of situation. But in a general way, no, most of the problems that I've faced in my life, I think, can be coped with, with patience, with enough patience, and by just putting one foot in front of the other. And eventually, you get where you're going, or you accommodate the situation with enough patience. So I'm less easily intimidated than I was before, but I must say going to war, realizing somebody's trying to kill you, is an intimidating experience, and if you don't respond to that, there is something mentally wrong with you. You mentioned, of course, you met uh, the love of your life, your wife Helen, many years ago. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think that Sis was a fox hunter, and her father was a member of the jockey club. Their family had had racehorses, good ones. So she was very much interested in horses. Through my involvement in the Olympic movement, she became exposed to dressage and was fascinated by it and became a dressage rider and then headed some dressage organizations, became an international dressage judge. She was, again, an extraordinary source of support and encouragement for me, but she had a wonderful career on her own. She was a Grand Prix rider. She rose to the highest standard of dressage in that discipline. And she really made a difference and, and drew many, many other people into dressage. And she and I were very ardent promoters of the concept of the freestyle in dressage. She was very, very active in that through the American Dressage Institute, which brought over the director of the Spanish Riding School to give lectures and to give clinics and so forth, Colonel Hans Handler. And his son, Michael, had a property, stayed at a property that we owned in Darien. So Sis has just been wonderful, wonderful for my children, a wonderful wife, a wonderful mother, a wonderful 
citizen. And when you say, I'm going to do an Olympic Games, and you have three young children, there is a very big burden falling on the person who's taking care of them, their mother. And so Sis has just been an unbelievable person, and I was very, very lucky because it takes more than brains to pick a good wife. It takes a lot of luck, and I picked a darling, perfect one. I believe there's also an interesting story as to how you proposed to her and where it was. Well, a Cupid was involved, and a Cupid <laughs> was a, a gentleman named Otto Hugh Roth who ran the Oxridge Hunt Club in Darien, Connecticut. And I had known Otto since I was a child. And he said one day to me, Bill, how come you're not getting married? And I said, Otto, I haven't found the right person. And he said, I show you the right person. And he made a date with me at a party that was being given at the club for a member of the club who was also a, a friend of mine. And I went there and he introduced me there to Helen she was another, so they call her sis because her mother was a Helen and her grandmother was a Helen and she didn't want to be one more Helen, so she became a sis. We met there and very quickly I invited her to go to the theater, I think, in New York with, with me. And a year later we were married and, and who knows, I might never have done so without Otto as, a, as an intermediary. I was very lucky in the whole thing. Now, isn't there an Olympic connection to the actual proposal? My family came to the Games in Rome in 1960. And we had been dating for oh, six or eight months. And she said, well, I would like to go too. So she came to Rome. And Rome was kind of a mixed blessing because I had wonderful horses to ride. But the one that I placed the most faith in developed a physical problem during the Games. That was Riviera Wonder. Uh, I ended up riding in the Big Nations Cup, Zardes Prix, who was wonderful. We ended up with a team silver medal. But I would say that was a, a roller coaster ride of hopes and dreams and disappointments and then hopes and dreams again. And through all of that, she was absolutely steady as a rock and tremendous support for me. So I knew then that I really wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, and I proposed to her in Rome on that occasion, the Olympic Games. What a perfect setting. Well, I'm sure she and, and the rest of your family are a constant source of joy to you, Bill, but what actually would you say gives you the most meaning to your life? I think the thing that gives the most meaning to any life is making in some way a difference to doing within the limits of your own capability and they certainly ought to be stretched and stretched and stretched. You try to accomplishment is what makes life really worth living, and you want to leave in some small way the world different and better than it was than it would have been without you. You don't want to just take. You want to be a giver, and you want to try to give in a very meaningful way. So uh, I think that's the main thing. Um, I can say an interesting story. I, I used to be very critical of everything, and still am to a degree. But I was complaining one night about the American Horse Shows Association, the governing body, as it was then. It's now the United States Equestrian Federation. But it used to be the HSA, and I was complaining about that one night, and my father said, Bill, he said, why are you just baying at the moon? He said, you realize any damn fool can criticize. If you really want to do something for the American Horse Shows Association, get on the inside and try to make it better. And I did. I became very active on many of its committees. I became its 
youngest director, youngest member of the board of directors, and I became, over time, the oldest member of its board of directors. But the same thing was true with the International Equestrian Federation. Very easy to criticize. People are still criticizing it constantly. But I became a member of the board of directors, in, a, in effect, the bureau of the FEI, and I chaired a number of committees and wrote a lot of rules and did the best I could to help it. And I think I made a good contribution to the FEI, the Federation Équestre Internationale, which has a French real title, but that it's the International Equestrian Federation. And those accomplishments mean something to me, too. I think I was able to help the communication between the riders and, in effect, the bureaucrats, the rules writers, because quite often the people who are good at writing rules and willing to take the time and spend it and make the commitment to the sport are not people who had a high level of success as participants. Participants continue to make horses and show and compete, but you really need a bureaucracy to support it. So, as I said, I did my father's thing. I got inside that bureaucracy and made many of the changes that I thought were important to have made. Do you have a motto, Bill, that's helped you through your life? My father used to say, sometimes you do the best you can, angels can do no more, and if they don't like it, tough luck. And I've said that to myself more than once, because <laughs> you do the best you can. Doing less than the best is not very satisfying. How do you overcome adversity? Putting one foot in front of the other and having patience and not giving up. Have you endured a loss in your long life, Bill, that has taught you a life's lesson? Well, I think that life has many, many lessons. They're all life lessons if you're willing to listen to what's thrown your way. All, all the things we've been talking about are really life's lessons. And I ask this of all my guests, Bill, and I know that you're a man that's so well read. What books would you be reading now? What are on your nightstand? The night fan couldn't carry all the books that I tend to be <laughs> dipping into at one time. I don't read very much fiction, although I have read the great works of fiction. I was an English major. Uh, I don't read a lot of contemporary fiction, though, although I read a couple of Harry Potters. Out of curiosity, how has this girl been able to make such a vast fortune by tipping into the potential reservoir of teenage interest. And I enjoy the Harry Potter, but mostly I read nonfiction, and I read nonfiction about the whole range of subjects that interest me. And I also have a good library, and I pull down books every now and then. And I was looking for the source of a wonderful quote just a couple days ago, and I pulled out Thayer's Life of Beethoven, and I had always said, you know, a quote that I, I love is so apt, about Bach. I had heard somebody had said Bach means in German, Brook. And somebody had said, and it was stuck in my mind, this is kind Bach, this is ein Meer, this is no Brook, this is an ocean. <laughs> but I had forgotten exactly where I saw it. And I was looking something else up in Thayer's Life of Beethoven, and it was Beethoven who said it, towards the very end of his life. Wonderful expression, and very, very true. So as I say, I look things up, things occur to me, and I have a good reference library in a lot of different areas, and I have a wonderful horse library. The whole range of subjects that interest me, even to some extent, I'm not a 
person basically interested in politics, but I read some nonfiction about current affairs. And any of them, I might, I have usually four, five, six books going at once, and I dip into whichever one I feel like dipping into at the moment. Well, Bill, at the wonderful age of 85, as you referenced earlier, what does a day in the life of Bill Steinkraus look like now? Well, it's much less active than it used to be, but I've slowed down physically. I don't like the decade of the 80s so much, (laughs) although I think it's important to try to think positively because a lot of things have slowed down, but I still have some activity. We have a puppy in the house, which is a Christmas present from my sons to my wife. It's a miniature dachshund, the first one we've ever had. And this puppy really keeps me busy. So I do my walk with her because she needs some exercise. And we have a cat in the house. And what is my day like? I have a certain amount of correspondence. I read a lot of periodicals. I start out by reading several newspapers every day. I read the Times and USA Today and Wall Street Journal, and I read the Financial Times quite often. And that takes uh, an hour and a half. Depends on how good the paper is, how interesting the articles are. So I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly also watching television. I watch a lot of the tennis because I like all the sports, have some interest in all the sports. I watch television for its cultural programming. There's not as much of it as I wish there were, but I do that also. So I spend some time on the computer looking up things, looking for things, coping with my emails and so forth. I putter around and I practice some every day with uh, either the violin or the viola. I managed to stay busy. Well, it certainly seems that way, Bill. And, and at the end of the day, what would you say matters most to you now? I think accomplishment, being able to accomplish something, even if it's just a question of writing some letters that are difficult for you to write, but that ought to be written. And I try to whittle away at those tasks every day. And if I've been able to do all of the responsibilities that I have, responsibilities to the dog, responsibilities to my children, to my wife, and so forth, And if I've made some progress, seen the kids or seen the grandchildren, whatever, that's all part of my life, and that's what makes my life very much worth living still. Well, Bill, it certainly has been an inspirational life, and I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for being our guest. You're entirely welcome. Thank you very much. Please join me again in two weeks for another episode of Equestrian Legends. Until then, thank you for listening.